Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 7 this evening. Luke chapter 7. The ministry of Jesus brings about two polarizing reactions, belief and unbelief. The unbelief is seen in the five controversies that we saw in Luke chapter 5 and 6. And uh, it, it was by the Pharisees. Remember, they had a problem with Jesus claiming to forgive sins. They had a problem with Jesus eating with sinners. They had a problem with Jesus supposedly degrading the act of fasting. They had a problem with Jesus' view of the Sabbath, that He would allow His disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath and eat it, and also um, for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath. And so you have that one kind of polarizing reaction, the reaction of unbelief. But you also have the other reaction because the very next story that is recorded by Luke is that uh, Jesus calls His followers and then He takes them aside and He teaches them. And so you also have this reaction of belief. Jesus takes them to this hill, uh, some, some plain on a mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee, and we saw that Jesus called them to radical discipleship. That as believers, we must live in view of eternity following after God's example and being serious about our own heart. And so uh, we have some who do respond with belief, some who are serious about knowing His desires. And tonight we'll see further evidence of this other reaction, which is a reaction of faith in Jesus. Jesus has shown compassion to the Jews. We've seen Him do that in Luke's Gospel. He's been healing the crowds throughout Israel, including the Jewish man, remember, with the withered hand. But now... um, He's going to show compassion to some other ethnic group. How far will Jesus go in showing compassion to other people? Is it just to His own that He came to to bring healing? How far will He go? In, In this passage, we see that He is willing to heal a Gentile and one who was looked down upon in society, and that is a woman. And that's what we're going to find in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. So let me read that for us tonight. This is the Word of God. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored Him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to Him, for He loves our nation, and it was He who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on His way with them. And when He was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to Him, Lord, do not trouble Yourself further, for I am not worthy for You to come under My roof. For this reason I did not even consider Myself worthy to come to You, but just say the word, and My servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, Go, and he goes. And to another, Come, and he comes. And to my slave, Do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Soon afterward, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. 
Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin. And the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. Jesus has been showing His great power and authority to His own people, to the Jews, and He's been showing it to a great extent by healing the sick and by casting out demons. But tonight we see that Jesus' power and authority really has no limit. His power and authority have no limit. We see that in two ways, through two events that are recorded for us by Luke. First, Jesus' power is not limited to a specific race or to a specific location. Jesus' power is not limited to a specific race or to a specific location, verses 1 through 10. Jesus had just finished talking about radical discipleship from the hills near the Sea of Galilee, and he heads down the mountain with his disciples to Capernaum. And, and we have to keep in mind that Jesus is the promised Messiah to what nation? nation of Israel, right? So we would expect that the Messiah would minister to the nation of Israel. But the irony of his ministry as a prophet is that he is not welcomed by his own people. Right? John says in John 1.11, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. They did not receive him. And so, yes, Jesus does come to be a prophet to his own people. Yes, Jesus does come as the Messiah to his own people. But as many of his people rejected him. Now, certainly the disciples and many other Jews are the exception to that rule. But in general, the Jews do reject Jesus as the Messiah. And so here in chapter 7, Luke wants us to see the contrast that there is between the Gentile one who has faith, that's the centurion, and all these in Israel who respond in unbelief. So as we've been kind of going through the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, we've seen all these people respond wrongly to His ministry. And now Luke wants to show a great contrast and something that would serve as a rebuke in many ways to the people of Israel. That this Gentile who who did not have the Messiah promised to him specifically, right? Because he's outside of the race of the Jews. But he responds in belief anyway. And he believes in Christ's power to heal. So we're introduced to this man in verse 2. But before we look at him, okay, uh, the centurion, we want to see kind of the end of the story first. So let's look at verses 9 and 10 because we want to see that Jesus commends the faith of the centurion. Jesus says at the end of verse 9, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. So, in other words, this is the greatest faith I've seen. In my ministry on this earth, I've been around Jerusalem. I've been around uh, these other places in Capernaum, Galilee, and I haven't seen a greater faith. And uh, notice what Luke records here in verse 9. Now, when Jesus heard this, He marveled at Him, or He was amazed at Him. 
There are only two times that Jesus is recorded in his life to be amazed. In Mark 6, 6, Jesus is amazed at the unbelief of the Jews. Right? How could they not see? And here is the only other time where Jesus is amazed, and it is at the belief of this Gentile. Jesus is amazed enough to call the crowd's attention to it. So, if you picture Jesus coming along, He heals the man through this, um, we're going to see through these messengers. Apparently, these Jewish elders are around along with the disciples. Of course, He's gained a large following by now as well. But He stops them all and says, listen, I have something to say to you. Not even in Israel have I found such great faith. He wants to draw their attention to it. And I think for us, He wants to show us what great faith He has. This is like something that Jesus is highlighting without being able to do that. Uh, Luke is highlighting it for us as well. Listen, Jesus commends this man's faith. There's no greater faith that He has seen than this man. So we need to figure out why and how we can emulate it. Jesus shows His authority to heal from a distance. Remember, the man comes and asks, you know, can He heal this slave of mine? Verse 10, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good, good health. Jesus can simply speak a word and a person can be healed. In this case, He doesn't even use a word. He just says, go, He's healed. He, he, he heals from a distance. And so that's why I say Jesus' power is not limited to a specific race or a specific location. Jesus doesn't have to be right at your bedside in order to heal you. He can heal from a distance like He does with a slave. And so the main point of this, these last two verses, verses 9 and 10, is that this Gentile's faith is commendable. And so what we need to ask now is why is it commendable? What is so commendable about the centurion's faith. And we're going to see several things about it in verses 2 through 8. Number one, the faith of the centurion is commendable because it is based on hearing only. It is based on hearing only. Okay, so now that we're introduced to the centurion in verse 2, I should explain a little bit about him. He's a Gentile soldier who had been in charge of about a hundred soldiers. And one of those men apparently was critically ill, according to Matthew's Gospel, that he was paralyzed and tormented by this illness. And we also know that this centurion cares for him. Notice verse 3, when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. Why? Because he was concerned about his life. And he only acts, he acts only on the word of what he had heard about Jesus, verse 2, And the centurion slave who was highly regarded was sick and about to die. And when he heard about Jesus, so he had never met Him apparently. He never seen Him in action. He never heard of any of His teachings, only secondhand. And yet because of the testimony that came through the Jews, he believed in Jesus and His power and he sent for this man. He sent for Jesus to heal his slave. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas when he was convinced that he had to see the resurrected Jesus. Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet still believe. Friends, we have not seen the risen Lord. 
We have only heard the testimony of Him through other people. And yet, is that not enough to solicit our genuine belief? Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by seeing Jesus in person, right? No. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. ran into a, a man not too long ago who was telling me that he had a vision of Jesus and that he has seen him on a couple of occasions, told him what to do. And he asked me, do you believe that, that that's possible? And I said, well, I, I'm not going to argue with you about what you saw, but I can tell you that the Scriptures are clear that, that visions have ceased. That is, that God doesn't speak in that way anymore. And I took him to Luke 24, and I, sh- I showed him that uh, even Jesus Himself, the resurrected Jesus, didn't use his own body to prove that he was resurrected. Instead, what did he do to the men on the road to Emmaus? Where did he take them? He took them to the Old Testament. He started showing them from the Old Testament how he, he had to die and ha- he had to be resurrected. So Jesus, if his own body was not good enough in, the, in that sense to prove to them, okay, he, he wanted to show something greater that he's pointing or he, he has been pointed to by the Old Testament. We don't need visions of Jesus. In the next um, newsletter, I'm intended to write a critique on the book Heaven is for Real. You've heard of this book? This little boy apparently dies and goes to heaven for a short time and then comes back to life and he reports on all the things that he's seen in heaven. And uh, now they're making a movie on it, right. And, uh, and, and that kind of thing is very appealing to our society. You know, someone's seen Jesus. This is exciting. Someone's seen God. And yet, uh, the Scriptures are sufficient. We, we, like this man, can trust in Jesus apart from a vision of Him. So the faith of the centurion is commendable because it is based on hearing alone. And we should not minimize that because... That's how our faith is based. It's based on hearing alone. It's based on what we've heard about Jesus, what we've read about Him. Number two, the faith of the centurion is commendable because it is humble. Because it is humble. Verses 3 to 5. Instead of the centurion saying, you know, I have a man of authority and I'm going to talk to this man of authority. I'm going to have a conversation. Instead, when he heard about Jesus, verse 3, he sent some Jewish elders. And then they came to him. And they appealed on his behalf. Listen, this is a good man. He's worthy of you coming to help this slave. He doesn't demand to see Jesus. Even though he is a man in, in a high position, he instead sends these Jewish elders. Now, when the Jewish elders speak to Jesus, it comes across as if this, this uh, centurion is a little arrogant. Notice verse 4. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. In other words, He is worthy for you to grant Him grace. Why? Because, verse 5, He loves our nation and He built our synagogue. And and they may have thought that He earned up enough points to, for Jesus to help help Him. But the main thing that they're trying to get across is He's a good man. Now, this is an amazing statement, by the way, for Jews to make about a Gentile. That He is worthy of you to help Him. He loves our nation. And he's built our synagogue. This centurion probably was a large donor to the the 
the, the work of building the synagogue there in the city of Capernaum. And they commended him for that. They, they highly respected this man. He was probably a God-fearing man. And when he heard about Jesus, he recognized that he came from God. And so his faith is a humble faith. Number three, the faith of the centurion is commendable because he completely depends on Jesus' authority. He completely depends on Jesus' authority, verses 6 through 8. Again, in verse 6, we see his faith. Now, Jesus started on his way with them. So, Jesus responds to the Jewish elder and said, all right, I'm, I'm going to the slave. He starts heading towards the house where the centurion would be. And when he was not far off, middle of verse 6, the centurion sent friends saying, Lord, don't trouble yourself further, for I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. So, he completely depends on the authority of Christ. We see his humility again here, that he sends messengers. Don't come. Do you don't even come under, under my roof? Just, just say the word, and he will be healed. I think he also understands something of the Old Testament law, that what would happen to a Jew who went into a Gentile's house becomes unclean. Remember, because when the Jew, when Jesus later is going to send out the disciples, they have to come back and get ceremonially cleaned. And, and so he recognized that if Jesus, a Jew, would come into his house, he'd become defiled. And so he's protecting Jesus from that defilement. He was considerate of that. It wasn't just that he felt unworthy for Jesus to come into his home, but he didn't even feel that he was worthy to be in the presence of Jesus. He says, you're not worthy to come. I'm not worthy for you to come to me, and I'm also not worthy to come to you. Look at verse 7. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. So, in other words, I'm not worthy to be in your presence at all, for you to come to my house or me to come to you. So much different than how many people in our day view a meeting with Christ that we do deserve to be with Him. I, I mean, of all people, Christ should come to us. He, he should want to be with us. But He was completely dependent upon the authority of Christ. And this is why Jesus says, I have not seen such great faith. And it comes here at the end of verse 7 and then into verse 8. He says, in the middle of verse 7, But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, Go. And he goes. And to another, Come. And he comes. And to my slave, do this. And he does it. Okay, so he's making a, a, a comparison here between himself as a man in authority and Jesus, who's also a man under authority. That, that he was so confident in the power and authority of Jesus that he knew that Jesus could heal apart from a touch. Apart from some treatment of some kind. He understood that Jesus could just because He's the Master, the Commander, He could just say a word to one of His servants and it would be done. And the reason He understood this was because He also had people under Him in that way. And He could just say a word to His staff and they would do it. So He's comparing His military authority with Jesus' spiritual authority and He's saying, listen, if I can do this, I, being a man under authority or, or with authority, then you too can do the same when it comes to healing. And Jesus says, I have not found such great faith. Jesus shows that His power is not limited either by a specific race 
he work he works on behalf of the Gentiles here or a specific location. He doesn't have to actually be there to heal. In in the next story, verses 11 through 17, we see that Jesus' power is not limited to a specific gender or a severity of illness. A specific gender or severity of illness. Not only is Jesus' power not limited to a specific race, but it's also not limited to a specific gender. The, The gender of choice, the gender of prominence would be the the male gender in in their day and they would have they would not have valued women very highly they did not value women very highly and so Jesus shows his power to reach out to this woman who is in a desperate situation and he shows also that he can go beyond someone who's just really sick someone who's just on the brink of death we see in the first story you know, this man's on the brink of death and Jesus can protect him from that and save him. Here, we have someone who's actually died. And so now he, he shows not only that he can preserve life, but that he can restore it or resurrect it. And Luke writes this event in such a way that it parallels a miracle done by Elisha in First Kings chapter 17. Okay, so we'll look at this story here in Luke and then we'll look at First Kings and see some of the parallels uh, that I think Luke is trying to point out. And the focus of this passage is on Jesus' power and compassion. First, we see that Jesus' compassion is seen in His sympathy for the grieving mother, verses 12 and 13. Now, as He arrived, as He approached excuse me, the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of His mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, He felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. Jesus' compassion is seen in His sympathy for the grieving mother. Nain is about six miles south of Nazareth and about 20 or 30 miles south of Capernaum, which is probably where they're coming from. So it would have taken a whole day to get there. And typically, when a person died in those days, particularly Jewish people who died, they would bury them the same day because of the defilement that comes from whatever the dead body touches. So the longer they leave him out, the more possibility it is that he will defile more things. And so they usually bury him the same day. So since they had been likely walking all day, they arrive there in the evening as it's approaching evening. He probably died and they're having the funeral that same. He probably died earlier that day. They're having the funeral that same day. The body would be wrapped in cloth and carried on a plank to his burial place outside the city. Again, to keep from defiling the city. And the great tragedy of the situation is highlighted for us in verse 12, that a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. That is, she is... And then it says the very next phrase, and she was a widow. So the only son of a widow. So keep in mind that in, in, in this day, in their day and in their culture, it would be much different from ours, right? You have a widow whose husband dies and whose family dies. Maybe she's the only one left. She can be cared for by... You know, we have institutions in our country that help care for people like this. We have, you know, we have government who, who sets aside funds and programs to provide for people who are destitute like this. But in their day, she would be a person that was basically on the brink of, of financial destruction, of 
even starving because she's without a family. She doesn't have a husband to help provide for her. She doesn't have a son to help provide for her now. And so she would be left without hope. And so Jesus approaches along with His sizable crowd that He brings and she's coming out of the city to come outside and bury the son and she has a sizable crowd with her. And so you have these two large crowds meeting with Jesus and she being at the center of what's going to happen. In verse 13, Jesus sees the woman and He feels compassion for her. So I say the, the focus of this passage is on Jesus' compassion for her. He saw her, He felt compassion for her, and He said to her, Do not weep. Jesus' compassion is seen in His sympathy for the grieving mother. Secondly, Jesus' compassion is seen in His raising the young man to life. Verses 14 and 15. And raising the young man to life. Verse 14, He came up and touched the coffin. And the bearers came to a halt and He said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The touching of the coffin doesn't bring the young man to life. If you look carefully, it simply brings the pallbearers to a stop. Normally a person would be ceremonially defiled, right? If he touches something that was touched by a dead man. Anything that was unclean, if it touched something else, it made that unclean. So for Jesus to touch something that's unclean, the the coffin, then He would become ceremonially unclean. And so basically what happens here is Jesus risks His own ceremonial cleanness in order to heal this dead man. It doesn't deter Him from helping this woman. And he, He stops them from continuing on. And I can just imagine that all the crowds are looking on and He says to the young man, Young man, I say to you, arise. And verse 15 reads, The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. So, Jesus saw her. He had compassion on her. He said to her, do not weep. And then He heals or brings the man back to life. And then He gives the son back to her. And we have the, the similar wording in 1 Kings chapter 17. But before we turn there, um, what we need to we need to see the the response of the crowd. Jesus gave him back to his mother, which certainly would have um, brought life back to her. Right? She's on the brink of death herself, without any hope, apart from a husband and a son. She's on the brink of death herself. So when Jesus brought life to the son. He also brought life back to the woman as well. Verse 16, here's the response. Fear gripped them all. So you have her huge crowd of people who are coming to witness or or to, to bury the Son and then Jesus and His huge following. And they all are gripped with fear and they began glorifying God saying, A great prophet has risen among us. God has visited His people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and all the surrounding district. So they respond rightly with reverent awe. They recognize that Jesus is what? What does it say there in the middle of verse 16? A great prophet. A great prophet. That We recognize that Jesus is a great prophet. Now we might think capital P, prophet, that is the prophet, the Messiah. You know, even the next phrase, God has visited His people. That sounds like a messianic phrase. Like they understand now who Jesus is. But this is probably not that. They probably don't understand that He's the Messiah at this point. 
Now, they're not wrong in what they say, right? He is a great prophet and God has visited him, but visited them by helping, by, by bringing this man to life. But I would say that their thinking is just incomplete. It's going to take some time even for the disciples to be able to make this claim. Remember when Jesus asked Peter, He says, but who do you say that I am? And He, he at that point recognizes that Jesus is more than a prophet. I mean, there's still several events that's going to kind of jog the, uh, the mind of the, the disciples like when He is in the boat and He calms the storm. And they say, who is this? And even the wind and the waves obey Him. So they're still trying to form an understanding of who this is. They don't fully understand that He's the Messiah at this point. And I don't think the crowd does at this point either. They just recognize that God has sent someone to speak on His behalf and to heal on His behalf. And they were likely thinking of this passage in 1 Kings. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. And I think there's a parallel here because the way that Luke the the way that Luke writes this event, he he puts a lot of the same terminology and he puts the order of events in a similar way and it finishes in the same way. And so that's why I say they see this as a prophet like here Elijah who's healing or bringing to life this this young man who who has died. So let me read this passage for us. It's in Luke, uh, excuse me, First Kings 17, beginning in verse 17. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his sick sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. Remember, Elijah staying with her. And she's providing uh, food for him as God continues to supply. And he said to her, verse 19, Give me your son. Then he took her from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living. He laid him on his own bed and he called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. Okay? You see some parallels there? Uh, there are some differences, certainly. Elijah prays before the resurrection. Jesus doesn't. Uh, Elijah lays on the young man three times. Je- Jesus simply does what? He speaks to the man. Young man, I say to you, arise. But the, the, the main parallel here is in verse 23 and verse 24. Verse 23, he took the child and brought him down to his mother. And then verse 24, now I know that you are a man of God. Luke the crowd says, now we know that you are a prophet of God, that God has come to visit His people. You see, they, they recognize that Jesus is a prophet, much like Elijah, but they should have also recognized that He was more than a prophet. That God came to show mercy to them through this man. And so, really, I think what Luke is doing in his gospel as he's leaving us with the question in our mind, who is this man? 
I mean, they see him as clearly a great prophet of God. We see the kind of the parallels between what Jesus does and what Elijah does. But who is this man? Is he just another prophet or is he the actual Messiah? And that's what Luke is going to answer for us next week in at the end when we look at the end of Luke chapter 7. He's going to answer whether this man really is the Messiah. John there is in prison and he sends some of his disciples to Jesus and says, is this, is this the promised one? Is this the expected one that we should be looking for? And Jesus responds with the quotation from the Old Testament. And so we'll, we'll get that answer. But I think for this week, we, we see this as, as some kind of a prophet for God. We see Jesus as some kind of a prophet from God. And in fact, the first story seems to parallel. Many scholars agree that the first story, the, the, the story of the centurion having his slave healed, is very similar to the story of Naaman when Naaman is healed in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman is a well-respected Gentile officer and he doesn't go directly to the prophet. Instead, he goes through a Jewish girl. He speaks through a Jewish girl. And the centurion actually never meets Jesus and neither does Naaman ever meet the prophet Elisha. And in the same way, healing takes place at the distance. Remember how Naaman was healed? How was he healed? Anybody remember from Sunday school? Okay, he had a dip in the river seven times, right? Is that what it was, seven? Okay, so so he he gets healed from a distance, and and so we have a similar story. I think Luke is trying to to point out to us, hey, listen, this this is this is something that's important. This this should this should uh, cause our minds to reflect on the Old Testament and and the Old Testament prophets who were able to do these things, but in a greater way. Jesus comes. So we learn several things about Jesus uh, in this passage. Jesus is compassionate to all kinds of people. He is compassionate to the Jew and the Gentile, to men and women, to those who come to them and to to those He finds. Right? Isn't that interesting that in the first story that Jesus uh, Jesus has the centurion come to Him. He knows He needs it. He has a need, and He comes to Jesus through through the Jewish elders and through the messengers. But then in the second story, Jesus goes to the woman. She doesn't go looking for Jesus. Oh, I wonder if someone can heal my son or, or resurrect my son. He comes to those who, who have needs. That's the way Jesus works today as well. He also has authority to heal all kinds of ailments. He can heal those who are near death, and He can heal those who are actually dead. He can bring life to those who are dead. And then thirdly, we learn that Jesus loves to help those who believe in Him. Turn to Mark 6. We're going to look at two more passages here and we'll uh, we'll be done. Mark 6. This is a passage I, I alluded to earlier. Jesus marveled at their unbelief. This is the only other time in which we hear that Jesus marvels at something. That He's amazed at something. Look at verse 4, Mark 6. He's teaching at Nazareth in the synagogue. They take offense at Him, verse 3, and Jesus said, verse 4, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And He could do no no miracle there except He laid His hands on a few sick people and healed them. 
And he wondered, he was amazed, he marveled at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. Okay, so he wondered at their unbelief. And notice the conjunction there in verse 6. And he wondered. Or I would say probably a proper way to understand this is so he wondered at their unbelief. So why did he wonder at their unbelief? Or or what, what was the result? It was that he could... Look at verse 5. He could do no miracle there. Here's a connection between our faith and what Jesus does. Is it possible that God withholds His power from us because we don't believe? He could do no miracle there because He wondered at their unbelief. Because of their unbelief. This is how the New Living Translation puts it. Because of their unbelief, Jesus couldn't do any miracles among them except lay His hands on a few sick people. Is it because Jesus is lacking some power that He can't do that? No, it's because Jesus works through means generally. And that is, He generally causes people, He he generally does great acts of power through the faith of others, through the faith of His followers. And it's true, God does do great things in our lives, even as Christians, even when we don't believe. But I believe that God often doesn't do things for us because of our unbelief. Turn to James chapter 4, because I think this is consistent. This idea in Mark 6 is consistent with what James says in James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 3. You ask, oh, I'm sorry, verse 2, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and contain, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Okay? God doesn't work because you don't have enough faith to ask. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Is it possible that God withholds good things from us because of our unbelief? This kind of dovetails with what we were talking about this morning in Exodus. God withholds things from us because of our lack of belief. He wants to wake us up to the fact that He is worthy of being trusted for every single thing in life. And the reason that we don't have a lot of those things is so that God can give us something better. That is an understanding that we need to depend on Him. Turn back to chapter 1. I said two passages. Let's make three. All right, James 1. This will be the last one. James 1, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You see, the reason that God many times withholds things from us is not because there's something lacking in Him. It's because He doesn't have people who are willing to believe Him enough to ask Him and to ask without doubting. 
I don't know about you, but I find myself in this situation often that I don't believe that God really will do it or that He can do it. I don't necessarily say it that way to God, but but I just don't ask. And and when I do ask, I don't ask believing. My prayers can become um, monotonous, mundane, kind of going through the motions, and there's not a whole lot of trust in what God can do and what God will do. And James tells us that we shouldn't be surprised when we don't we don't get the wisdom that we need when we don't see God work in powerful ways. And so we should learn from the centurion faith, centurion's faith, which is like neon letters. Hey, this man's faith is commendable. I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel. And I think our lack of faith contributes to a lot of problems in our Christian life. It, our lack of faith contributes uh, to a lot of of things that we otherwise would have gotten if we just trusted in God. I would say it this way, my lack of faith in what God can do keeps me from planning big. Okay, Because I don't trust God to do anything big, I don't plan big. My lack of faith in what God can do keeps me from praying big. Just pray, you know, the, the, the little things, and we should pray for the little things. And my lack of faith in what God can do keeps me from participating big. You know, I'm not going to get involved in this. Nothing's going to come of it. And yet, we, of all people, should trust in what God can do. We have more revelation about Jesus than the centurion and the widow. We know that He is more than a prophet, that He is also the Son of God. And why can we not trust Him to accomplish good things for us? Jesus could do no more miracles there. And He marveled at their unbelief. Could it be that God is prompting us to trust Him more? Could it be that God has great things and He wants to give us? But but we, like foolish children, are not even willing to ask because we don't trust what He can give to us. Let's ask God's help for us as we even spend the rest of our time praying in belief that God will accomplish what He will accomplish and He will accomplish great things through us as we trust in Him. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the example of the centurion, this Gentile man who had not seen Jesus, who had not met Jesus and was not worthy to to even be in His presence. And yet he, he still knew that Jesus had the power. He, he believed that He could heal this slave. And Lord, we ask for Your forgiveness for ourselves when we we don't pray in belief. We pray as double-minded people, unstable in all our ways. Lord, we've seen so much of You, Your great power and Your great work in our lives, and yet we fail to trust You like we should. And Lord, we complain and, and are frustrated that we don't have some of the things that would be good, some things that would that would bring about honor for Your name. And we complain because we don't have those and wonder at why You don't provide those for us. And many times it's as simple as that we don't trust in You and in Your power. So help us, we pray. Help us even now as we spend the rest of our time 
praying together as a church that we would that we would pray and believe. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.